Good morning. My name is Colton. I'm the youth pastor here at SunWest, and this morning we are going to be continuing through our sermon series called Reunion. So we have been on this uh, series for a while, and what we've been doing is trying to give a better explanation and some clarity around this word gospel. And what does the gospel mean, and what does the gospel look like? So just a little bit of a recap. Uh, We've gone through the gospel in one word is... Jesus, Sunday school answer, this is the good one, right, um, is Jesus. The gospel in three words we learned is, um, is Jesus is Lord. And this week, like the last few weeks, we're going to be continuing through the gospel in 30 words. What does this look like? Uh, and what it is, is this, is Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's love life. So this week, we're going to be talking about this one, shut down religion. And at first, I was given this one. I was like, oh, this seems like a, like, a, like a big task. This whole idea of shutting down religion is this crazy task that the world uh, religious leader, Jesus, right, the Messiah, has come who claims to be on mission to shut down his own religion. There's a word that's been thrown around during COVID, and it's like my least favorite word these days, is unprecedented. I don't know if anybody shares that same uh, feeling towards this word unprecedented, but this feels unprecedented. This is unparalleled. When else has this happened that the world uh, religious leader, Jesus, he's here to shut down his own religion. If you're like me, you think Jesus came uh, to shut down religion. Why did he start one of the biggest ones? It doesn't seem like, uh, like it makes any sense, so it's a great question. Uh, So that's what we're going to be trying to answer this morning of like, what does it mean that Jesus came to actually shut down religion, to show us a different way, uh, and to bring a different way of living? But before we do, I think it's important for us to have a little bit of a definition and understanding of the word religion. What do we think about when we think of religion? I think we probably think about the world religions, right? The big ones, there's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and there's an extensive list that goes on and on and on and on. What religion is, it's a social cultural system uh, that's designated to the belief of a higher power or a higher being. And usually this belief results in morals, behavior, and that worldview. When we look at it, in the Latin, uh, the Latin word is this. Um, I'm going to try to get them right. Um, Religare. Religare? 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 I was going back and forth between the two of them. Uh, Religare, maybe? Anyways, it's not about how you pronounce it. Um, it's more about the meaning of it. So let's go through it. Uh, re, to return, to repeat. Laguerre, to tie or to bind. Our English word ligament comes from that, right? As it's um, holding various par- parts of the body together. It's this, uh, this union, this reunion, right? Like this idea of tying things Uh, together. In a positive sense, religion can mean fasting to oneself to something that's important, right? Religion, uh, like a kite. I don't know how many of you flew kites maybe this summer or as kids. I still have a kite. I got a Star Wars kite. I think maybe Angel's uh, parents, my wife, um, think that maybe I'm more of like a, for a while there, they're getting me uh, like like Lego and kites and stuff, Um, but now that's getting like tools and some other stuff. But got a kite years ago, and when you fly a kite, there's something important. When you fly the kite, the wind catches it, and there's somebody who's holding onto the string, and then there's this tether that actually tethers the, the person flying the kite to the kite. But if I were to let go of that, that kite would fly, and eventually it would fall down. 
right? Sometimes religion is viewed as this, that we are this flight that's, that's, that's flying, that's living life because we are actually tethered to the source of God, right? In the positive sense, that is what we can mean uh, by this idea of religion. But Jesus, Jesus never used the word religion. What he used instead, he used this word. He used pistis. And we say this lots at SunWest, I think mainly because it's just fun to say. Uh, pistis, it's this, it's, it's not religion. What it is is faith. It's faith. It's this word of believing in something, but not just believing in something in this uh, head knowledge, but it's this trust. It's trusting. Like if I were to have faith in a parachute, and I were to go skydiving, and I go into the plane, and we start climbing uh, 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet, we keep going. I don't know what the height is where you jump out of a plane, but more than 200 feet, I think. But uh, you get to the top where you're ready to go, and you have faith in this parachute. But you get to the top, the doors open, and you don't jump. Did you really have faith in that parachute? If you really had faith in that parachute, your actions follow. You would jump, that you would trust that. That is what Jesus is calling us to. It's not just this, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but our actions follow. We actually take uh, these steps, and that's what I think is this idea, that we actually take these steps of faith. It's not, about, um, it's not about just this head knowledge, but it's actually trusting in a person. It encourages us into action. Used in this sense, Jesus is following us more into a relationship of trust than Jesus is calling us into a religion. But religion in the negative sense, and I think we've all had some of these ideas of the negative sense, and we've actually seen the negative impact that sometimes religion can have, right, on the, the hurt of the world or seeing others in this different worldview that actually creates disdain and creates hate, that we get this idea that sometimes religion is this, can have this negative sense, but when we look at it, right, to return, read, to return or to repeat, laguerre, to tie or to bind, it quite literally means a return to bondage. Religion, this return to bondage. When we look at it, um, we look at religion, most of us kind of think of this idea of the systematic structure and rituals and services and these tasks that we must accomplish to actually get to God, to actually get close to God. They act as a mediator between us and the reality that Jesus has for us. If we accomplish these things on our own, then we would actually build this bridge to God. There's this verse in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. There's one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man's name is Christ, the man, the man Christ Jesus. We're missing the gospel whenever we let any institution, person, substitute Jesus as our mediator. I think religion has this danger. It has a danger of saying there's one mediator between God and humanity, and that is the Bible. If we just follow the Bible according to plan, then we will actually get to God. There's one mediator between us and God, and maybe that can be a prayer. Oh, if you just say this certain prayer, this certain way, in a certain time, then we will gain salvation. I think the religion has the danger of saying there's one mediator between God and humanity, and that is SunWest Church. Come to SunWest Church, and you will find God. Right, This whole idea of like if SunWest Church is here to draw people closer to God and each other. As soon as we say people need SunWest to be right with God, we've actually missed the point. But sometimes we can see we can make uh, those institutions or make the Bible or prayers, we can make those the main things and we don't actually make Jesus the main thing. I think religion has the danger of making that happen in our lives. That kind of religion is less like a string. Right? We talked about uh, being a kite that's flying, that's actually being tethered uh, to God. That, that's the reason that we can fly. That I think it's way less about, um, yeah, being, the religion is less 
like a string that helps us fly a kite and more like a chain that prevents the kite from ever flying. In fact, it makes it irrelevant whether the kite owner is holding on to the other end or not. Religion doesn't need God at the other end. The system can function fine without him. My dad, growing up, he always had this saying, if we're watching TV and I'm standing, you know, if he's sitting here and I'm, the TV's over there and I'm standing in front of him, he had this saying, uh, you make a better door than a window. What did he mean by that? Right, that he, I'm obstructing his view from seeing what he should actually, that he actually wants to see. Um, it's kind of like religion kind of serves as this. Religion is this big finger that's pointing to God, right? Pointing to God, but in this pointing, it's the finger that's actually obstructing the view of God, right? This big finger that is actually getting in the way from us from actually seeing God. So if Jesus came to shut it down, to shut that whole concept down, how did he do it? And I think the first thing is this, is replacing sacrifices, for us to live, something had to die, right? That is the concept. Um, yeah, that's, what's, that's the concept of sacrifices and why it's central to almost every ancient religion. If sin is the great problem, salvation is the great need. To get forgiveness, a person would have to go to a priest um, who would prepare that sacrifice on their behalf to appease God, creating an ever-ending cycle. Sacrifices were our attempt to make the gods happy with us, to forgive us, to answer our prayers, or even to listen to us. We needed the right sacrifice to make an angry deity change their mind about us. John, when he sees Jesus approaching, he says this. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb of God. Lambs were often used for sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb provided by God, not by us. Jesus is God's gift of grace doing for us what we've been trying to achieve through religion. He's the lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. Who takes away. Sacrifices were this never-ending cycle. Like most, myself included, it's a cycle in our life of sin. Right, of like this, this continued thing, and same with that. And if it continued, then sacrifices also continued. But if Jesus did this, if he actually took it away, he's making sacrifices obsolete. And sin of the world. Sin of the world, singular. Right, I just love that. It's not like the sins of some people, or the sins of this person who read their Bible right, or the sins of this person who continued to go to church. But what it says is the sin, he takes away the sin of the world. Like what John is saying here is forget about sacrifices. Jesus has come to take away sin for all, once and for all. That's the good news that we are not just saved from our sin, but we're actually saved from this religious system of sacrifices, this never-ending cycle. Many people relied on religion as a means to salvation. That this is this idea, if we sacrifice this, then I would gain this salvation. Many relied on religion as a career, says the pastor. Uh, this was a threat to those people, right? They felt like they needed to stop it. This is this threat to their idea of salvation, a threat to some people's livelihood, their career, their status. And it's funny that those same religious people, the ones that put Jesus on the cross, by doing so, the religious leaders facilitated the sacrifice that made all other sacrifices redundant. We no longer need to sacrifice animals. We ourselves must become a living sacrifice, as Romans 12, 1 says. A living sacrifice, 
which is kind of funny, right? Like it almost sounds it's like this uh, oxymoron word, right? Like it doesn't quite make sense. Living sacrifice, similar to jumbo shrimp, only choice, pretty ugly, uh, Edmonton, city of champions. <laughs> sorry, I just had a, I sorry, I just had to throw that in there. Uh, but back to the point. Uh, we no longer, and I think that's why they removed it from their sign. I think they understood it too. Uh, we no longer worship God by killing. We actually worship God by living. We no longer worship God by killing. We worship God by living. Next, Jesus came to replace priests. Priests were seen, as we talked before, about this mediator. What is a mediator? It's drawing two parties back together. Um, priests were this mediator between God and his people. Jesus came not only as a sacrifice, but also as the mediator, reconciling relationship between God and mankind. Priests had a really difficult job. They were the ones to hold the weight of other people in their sin. That somebody would come and they'd bring their sacrifice to the priest. The priest would prepare, prepare the sacrifice, prepare the altar to make the sacrifice, and doing this for all people. Like this was something that was a daily occurrence, that this was a full-time job. And while they did it, they wouldn't sit. They would stand. The standing is this representation of actually standing and holding the weight of that person, right? Holding the weight of that sin so that they can be in right relationship with God, that they wouldn't sit. When we see the story of Jesus' death, uh, we see the story of Jesus holding that weight, holding that burden, carrying that cross, standing while he's on the cross. And when it is all done, when it says it is finished, when he's um, brought back to life and resurrected, what does he do? He sits at the right hand of God the Father. Right? He can sit and rest. But the weight is no longer to be carried. And I think we can follow God's lead. I think religion sometimes creates busyness where we feel like we have to continuously stand. We have to continuously do more to gain God's favor. But I think what we can do is we can actually just rest. That there's nothing we can do to gain salvation. It's been freely given and that we can rest in that. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, he says that all believers are a royal priesthood. In an individual world, I think we can quite often take it as this, that we're just like, well, if I'm a royal priesthood, if I'm a priest, then I don't need others. I can just, I spend time, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to a coffee shop that I do faith, that I don't actually need other people. We can get this idea in our head about this idea, if we are our own priests and we don't actually need other people. But in this idea of this collectivism worldview where we actually need other people, this worldview sees it as, ah, I don't need a paid a holy person because I have God's people all around me. The idea of the priesthood of all believers should drive us to one another, where we receive more of God through each other. We may not need a professional called a priest, but we do need community. Spiritual family, authentic friendships. In other words, we don't need more religion. We do need more relationship. This is the purpose of the church serves. It's a collective group of believers not relying on certain people to do the work of God, but we are all drawing closer to God while drawing closer to each other. Another thing, Jesus came and he replaced temples. Jesus, at the point of his death, that he was playing these three different roles, right? He was playing the Lamb of God that's being sacrificed, He's playing the priest who is doing the sacrificing, and he played the temple where the sacrifice is being offered. Right? The temple. Uh, this is the place uh, in Jerusalem where 
the sacrifices would happen. It was the place that was holy. It's where God's spirit dwelt and lived. Often religions, they revolve around some kind of holy ground or sacred architecture. In Jesus' time, that was the place. It was the temple where God's spirit dwelt. Yeah, they thought that God was omnipresent, that God is you know, bigger, that God is kind of everywhere, but they really had this concept and this idea that God manifested in the temple in a really unique way. And Jesus, while he was here, he said this. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. But the temple that Jesus is talking about, it wasn't this physical building, even though we find out way later in the story uh, that the temple eventually was destroyed. But what Jesus is talking about, what he's talking about, he's talking about his body. That you don't need a building, a cathedral, a temple, a shrine, or an auditorium to meet with God. And I think Sun West has done a great job of this, uh, even though maybe it was unintentional, or maybe it was intentional for a while, right? But this idea of, you know what, we've met in a community center, in a high school, in a theater, sometimes even at a farm, uh, but it was never about this holy space. So what was it? In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says this, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God, that the spirit of God lives in you? The followers of Christ become the body of Christ, and in the same way, we become the temple, that God's spirit actually dwells and lives in us. It says, for two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. In Matthew 18, 20, the Spirit is in us, and the Spirit is with us. The Spirit is among us. Uh, that's what it means that we are the temple of God, that our bodies are a temple. When two or more gather, it doesn't mean that the Spirit isn't with us when we're alone, but there is power in togetherness. There is power in togetherness when, the t- when us where the Spirit dwells when we actually come together. The most sacred place on the planet is a space between you and me when we love one another as Jesus does. That is what's sacred. It's not necessarily about a space, but it's about this person and this relationship with God and with each other. When Jesus also came, he came to replace rituals. came to replace rituals. James is the only person in the entire Bible to use the word religion. Uh, and this word, so we'll just go through it, right? He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion for James is a life that is rooted in love. James uses this word, threskeia, this Greek word. Primarily refers to an external behavior of a religion, including ceremonies and ritual. What James is saying is we no longer need a certain religious liturgies or religious service or a specific prayer. Rather, our ritual is a life lived in love. Religion is a life lived in love. But you might ask yourself, then what about all these Christian traditions? What about baptism? What about communion? Because here at Sun West, that we practice those things and we think they are incredibly beautiful, but the difference is this. It's not out of obligation. What it's out of, it's out of grace. It's an act that is out of grace. Christ followers don't participate in any activity to earn what has already been given. We use these traditions to remind us of the gift that has already been given. There's a main difference there. Last week, Matt and I, we were up here, and we were talking about Christmas traditions. 
I think everybody's got some Christmas traditions. I think one of them in our family is setting up the Christmas tree. So obviously this wasn't this weekend because there's no snow on the ground. Uh, That was a couple weekends ago, but this is my daughter Lucy, and she is setting up the Christmas tree. That is one of our Christmas traditions. I also talked about last week uh, of my new favorite place in our house. So we just bought a house this summer, and in this house we have a fireplace, right? And even the last two days, Friday, Saturday, I had a fire in there, sitting around the fire with stockings, listening to Christmas music. I think there are a number of traditions that we all do to kind of bring that Christmas spirit here, right? So maybe you put up the Christmas tree. Maybe you listen to James Taylor as Matt or Mariah Carey like the rest of us. Uh, Or you go to Starbucks for that red cup. There's gift giving and receiving, stockings, Christmas oranges, home alone. And these are beautiful things. They're fun. They bring the family together. They help enhance what we call the Christmas spirit. But regardless of how many activities we do, Christmas still comes. Even if you steal them all like the Grinch, Christmas still comes. Christianity can be similar, right? That if we only focus on those rituals, we are in danger of buying into this consumerism. I think Christmas can sometimes become more about those things than the actual reason. And there's that classic line, right? The reason for the season. Uh, But we can be too occupied on those Christmas traditions and actually not why we're doing them in the first place. I think religion, we can do the same thing. We can focus on those religious uh, rituals and those religious things more than actually focusing on the reason that we're doing them. That we allow those to actually become our idol of worship instead of actually worshiping God. Similar to those Christmas traditions, they remind us of the season and the gift of Christ. Religious rituals don't make things true, but they are a wonderful way to help what is true to sink into our souls. Those religions, right, they don't make things true, but what they allow is the things that are really true to sink into our souls, to sink into our life, to make a difference. What Jesus also did is he came to replace rules. Children need rules. Uh, Like I said, we just bought a new house, and it had all of those old plugins. You know, like, well, maybe not that old, but those plugins that look like a face, uh, they're like got the circle and then the, and they look like a face. So, but the thing about those plugins is, if you were to stick, let's say, a fork or a knife, I don't, I'm not really giving those to my kids to play with, anyways. But uh, if they were just to put it even just into one end, they would it would zap you. And that's not good. We don't want that to happen. Uh, we replaced all the ones upstairs with the new ones, which are apparently, if you just stick something into one side, it doesn't zap you. You've got to like conduct both sides for it to to be able to zap you. That's what my electrician was telling me, anyways. But downstairs. We did not replace those plugins. They still have the old plugins. So uh, knowing that downstairs is the place with all the toys and where the kids make a mess, uh, where my daughter Lucy and all and my son Oliver, where they just play, what we did is we bought those little plugs. Has anybody done that? Where you actually like you just buy those plugs and you stick them into the outlets um, because those kids actually need some rules, right? They need some guidelines of like what not to do. So I was like, at this point, I was like, I don't trust you to make those decisions on your own. As a parent, I am making the call and I'm making those decisions and I'm making those rules. And that rule is that this plug-in goes in there. Don't want them to be zapped. But eventually, I want my kids to be able to use power. I think there's some good things in it, right? Without power, you can't plug in a lamp, charge your phone, watch TV, that eventually I want, or make plug in the toaster and make toast in the morning, eventually I want my kids to be able to use those plugins. Those things only started out as a guide when they're young, but hopefully the goal is that they're able to actually make decisions out of wisdom, not just based out of rules. 
Right? Eventually, the plan is to help them grow to make their own life decisions motivated by love and by wisdom. Rules function like moral training wheels. They keep us alive long enough for our minds to develop and our hearts to learn. If you've ever read the Bible, you've noticed there are a lot of rules. A good, good portion of it is rules. When you ask some people about the Bible, that's the thing that comes up right away. What is the Bible? A list of rules. And can this get this idea that that is what we're doing? We're here just to follow the Bible, to follow these rules, to gain this relationship with God. Uh, this law-based living was meant to be a holding pattern, like a nanny, to guide us as children until we became ready for a friendship with God. We look through, even in the Old Testament, right? We have this idea, uh, and there's this glimpse, even through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Right? There is a new covenant. This new way of relationship. Not one that's based on rules, rituals, uh, but one that's actually written on our hearts. One that actually gives us a fresh start, that we can put those things behind and we can have a fresh start. But some people still kind of hold on to those rules. But it's funny how we decide and we choose which ones we want to follow and which ones we don't. We go through the Old Testament and we're like, ah, yeah, these ones, these ones look good. Let's follow these ones. But there's some that are really confusing and don't really seem to make sense, especially in our culture. Ah, let's get rid of those. But the Ten Commandments, now those are like the rules. Right? If you go through any rules, like those are the ones that we follow. If we follow those, then we will be in right relationship with God. If we follow those rules, we will gain salvation. Right? We even take those rules and we put them up on our house. They're important. I think those are good rules. They're great to follow. They help build like, society. They help us love one another. There's some really, really good things. They help us find rest. But sometimes we make those rules the idol, and we actually worship those rules more than anything. That we worship those rules to be able to gain salvation. But here's the thing. When God saved the Israelites from Egypt, it wasn't like this. It wasn't, hey, here's the Ten Commandments. Follow these rules, and if you follow these rules exactly, then you will be saved. No. What God did is he actually saved them first, brought salvation, then he gave the rules. God already saved the Israelites. They just needed to relearn how to walk on their own. They needed to learn how to flourish in which to build their lives. This foundation is what the rules were determined to form. It was there to form this foundation. We no longer read the Old Testament kind of as these list of rules, but we read it as this old uh, covenant, this old relationship, when we learn about its failures, but it also shows us the beauty of the new, the new covenant that is brought about by Jesus. So you're replacing rules. If anybody knew about the power of rules established in the Old Testament, it was the Apostle Paul. Right? The Apostle Paul is somebody that we get uh, most of our, our New Testament from. He wrote most of it, but he was a religious leader, that he was somebody who followed the rules to a T, and that whole concept and that whole idea that if people were to follow these rules exactly, even for a day, it was this idea that if they could follow everything exactly perfect, then eventually the Messiah would come, right? It was this rule-based living that we need to follow these things in order to bring the Messiah, that Paul was part of that until he came face-to-face with Jesus himself. Uh, and then Paul puts... Um, yeah, and he, Paul understands the importance of rules, right, and why people follow rules. Law-based living has the immediate advantage of clarity. 
right? It gives you, lets you know what's right and wrong. It lets you know where you are, but it fails to develop our hearts in a way of love. That Paul talks about the law has this potential to lead to sinful passions that are aroused by the law. What does that mean? These sinful passions that are aroused by the law. When I was younger, my parents, they told me, don't touch the stove. What did I do? Right on the stove. Uh, there's this idea that my parents, they gave me a curfew. What did I do? I pushed the boundaries of that curfew just to see what I could get away with. My daughter, she loves dessert. Every time we are uh, yeah, done eating, she's like, oh, can I have a dessert? Can I have a dessert? And Halloween made it way worse with all the chocolate that she had. So she'd come and she's like eating chocolate all day. And then after supper, she didn't even eat her supper. And then she's like, can I have a chocolate bar? Uh, and I'm like, no, you've already had enough sugar for today. So she says, okay, I already can't have a chocolate bar. So what she does is she goes to the fridge, gets ice cream, chocolate sauce, sprinkles, uh, which defeats the purpose, right? But she, she's like, you didn't say... You didn't say I couldn't have ice cream, but I couldn't have a chocolate bar, right? We, we hear the law, we push the boundaries. It's almost like uh, that phrase in the garden where it's like, did God really say, right? And we kind of get trapped uh, and we try to actually just like move the law around. When we live by the law, we look to ways that we can read in between the lines. When I first um, got my license at 16, I had a 1997 uh, Dodge Neon, lipstick red. It's, that thing stood out. You noticed it from anywhere. The windows wouldn't really roll down, roll down properly. You had to hold things up. Uh, shoelace was holding it into fifth gear. Uh, those are all true things. Uh, but as soon as I got uh, my drivers, I noticed that there's these signs. Didn't really think they meant anything, right? There's one that says 50, one that says 80, one that says 100. Uh, there are more things of like, how far can I drive to pass this? Those are speed limit signs for those who don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, we need to follow those. Um, but when you're young, you look to this idea of like, how far can I actually push the boundaries without getting caught? And I drove too fast. I'm not going to say how fast, drove too fast. And even now, um, my extended family, there's a bunch that live in Edmonton. There's a bunch that live in Saskatchewan, and we're doing a lot of driving. When I drive, I'm like, okay, I know the speed limit. It says 110, but ah, like 125. Like, what can I do to not get caught? You know, like, what's, like, fast enough that I'm not quite going to get caught, right? It's like these ideas or the suggestions that we actually just look for ways to actually break those rules. Two summers ago, uh, I got a mountain bike. I've talked about this a few times, but this idea of mountain biking is you climb up a mountain to go down as fast as you can. And I remember, you're, like, the first few, first few times, first few months, I'm just flying, like, just loving it. Until you're, like, you're going down and you meet with somebody who's coming up. And you do like a quick break and you wipe out because you weren't quite ready or aware of that person. Or you're going so fast uh, that you're pushing every boundary that you hurt yourself. This happened for, for, for a few months until I adjusted kind of my speed. It's not about going as fast as I possibly can. Yeah, it kind of still is. But uh, it's fast as I possibly can. But just knowing that, hey, somebody might actually be climbing up this trail too. Or going as fast as I can uh, without actually hurting myself. Right? I stop making uh, my decisions on how fast I'm going to do based on like a speed limit. I decided how fast I'm going to go to actually protect myself and actually how to protect others. In a similar way, when we think about this, love gets you to think in ways that law never can. And the new covenant uh, lifts the law, creating space for love to take the lead. The gift of grace 
If the great problem is sin and we are needing to be saved, then God's act of already saving us, not based on our actions, but based on what God has done, this is good news, right? As we're talking about gospel, gospel means good news. This gift is good news, and this gift's name is grace. There is a story that Jesus tells, a parable, in Matthew 20, uh, 1 to 16, that I'm going to read, and this talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. I know Pastor Dave, he shared a little bit about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God last week, but it goes like this. Uh, for, the king, for the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agrees to pay them the normal daily wage and sends them out to work. So just a reminder, this is the story. Uh, yeah, this is a story of God's kingdom of grace. And what does the gift of grace actually look like in our lives? At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock in the afternoon, he went in town and saw some people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working all day? They replied, because nobody hired us, which means they probably weren't that good. Uh, and the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in, and I'll pay them, beginning with the last workers first. So those hired at 5 o'clock were paid. Each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they, too, were paid a day's wage. They received their pay. They protested to the owner. Those people who worked only one hour, they only worked one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered them, one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do so, to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first, now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. I really dislike how much I resonate with this story. This idea of getting, not with the, I'm not the kind and gracious owner. That's not what I'm resonating with. Uh, more so with the other side. Like, how often are you, do we get jealous of others? Right? The story is about the kingdom of God. I think there's four points. It's a story of grace. Number two, God partners with people to get his work done. I love that. That God actually partners with people. Uh, that we are not spectators in this journey, but we're actually co-workers with Christ and partners the landowner chooses his workers, and this one I also love. He chooses his workers based on grace, not qualification. He didn't see him saying, hey, what's your resume? What religious things did you do? What things did you follow to be able to, follow, to, be able to work, to be able to co-work with Christ? That's what he did. He didn't do on their qualification. He did it on their availability. The only qualification was that you would show up. There was a response um, but it was minimal. It didn't have, the response was from that point on, the response was not these things to do beforehand, but it was this response after uh, that decision to co-work with Christ was made. 
The landowner is extremely gracious in his pay. He was so kind that it actually got people upset. And I think this all the time. Like grace is something that can make a religious person frustrated. Right? As a kid, I'm like, you know what? I went to church. I sat in the, in the pews that I listened to those sermons. And then all of a sudden, somebody can come later on in their life and start following Jesus and receive the same grace. That's not fair. Right? They should go through the same things. Right? It should be this protocol, though, the things that we have to go through to be able to receive that. And we can so easily get caught in that people are thrown off. They weren't thrown off because God is a tyrant, demanding, or judgmental. People got upset because he's too kind. If you were a religious person who has worked long and hard to achieve some sort of spiritual reward, you could be scandalized by this irrational grace. This may seem unfair that others don't deserve the same pay. This makes people upset, and it did. This made a lot of religious people upset. And this is why Jesus ended up on the cross. Grace that allows us to leave the past in the past and to become a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here, not based on the past, but making that decision from this point on and moving forward. So back to the original question. If Jesus came to shut down religion, why did he, start, why did he end up starting one of the world's largest ones? Right? The quick answer is this, he didn't. We did. And our weak hearts bent towards, bent towards idolatry because it's more concrete more predictable and immediate, right? Even after seeing the miracles, the Israelites still built the calf. After seeing all that God has done. In the beginning of creation, there's no religion. Just God and mankind, Adam and Eve. There is no place to meet God, no special rituals, no special leader. Um, there is just God and his humanity living together in intimacy. The Bible and Revelation ends the same way. We find God bringing us back to the same kind of living, a reunion in where we know God with no religion. But for now, we are in the middle. We're in the middle with Jesus reconnecting us with God's love life. So what does this look like in the meantime? And I think it follows most people's life, especially my life, and I'm going to share a little bit more about that, but I think we tend to follow uh, this structure in life, in most things, but also in faith and in our faith journey. I think it follows this. It starts with order. In the same way of grabbing those little plugs and putting them into the, uh, yeah, putting them into the electrical sockets that there has to start with order. There's rules. The Israelites were given these rules, these rules and guidelines, right, that, that are there to keep us safe. They're predictable. They help us to learn how to walk. Right? They train us. They give us that stability. Right? We start with this order. We start with these rules, and we don't necessarily know how to make the right decision. These rules make the decision for us. We follow the rules. We have order. Next, I think there's a time in life where disorder comes. And disorder is brought by a bunch of different things. Maybe disorder in our own faith journey has come by maybe you've been hurt in the church. Or maybe your faith has just become stagnant. That I'm like, oh, I don't even really hear from God anymore. What am I even doing here? Um, you're making, yeah, you're making, or at this point where you're actually just like making faith your own. I hear that all the time when I work with youth, where it's just like there's like this decision. They grew up in order. Their parents taught them about the faith, but at some point people are like, ah, oh, I actually got to make my faith my own. Or maybe you've encountered suffering that doesn't quite fit the mold of what you've heard about through religion. And suffering brings this disorder, that you want to challenge the way that things are, to recognize the damage of the religious system, to reform it, 
And I think many of us have been through that stage, and sometimes we call that stage this deconstruction of our faith, where we start to challenge the system, challenge the rules, challenge the things that we learned when we were kids. And I think this can be a good thing. It can actually help make something uh, have a deeper foundation. Right? It breaks from those rules and actually starts to question some of those things uh, and to build up. But I think there's a danger of staying there, and a danger of actually staying in disorder, making us feel lost, not knowing where we're going or who we are. Lastly, sorry, this thing, uh, did I have to shake it? I think it quit on me. I think you're supposed to shake it. It's like a shake weight. Uh, anyways, can we go to the next slide? There we go. All right. Uh, and then eventually, I think it comes back to reorder. I don't think that we can stay in disorder. I think we need to build up, right, this re, to return to. We need to return to, in a sense, this order. Realize that we need structure in our lives. Realize that those guidelines are actually there to help us, to discover the purpose of those things, that they, were, that they are not there to change God's. Here's the thing. Because at the beginning, I think those rules are somewhat to, and these rituals and this religion is to change God's disposition of us. But I don't think there's, it's not, they aren't there no longer in reorder to change God's disposition towards us, but they're there to help us change ours towards God. It's a reminder deep in our souls that's revealing what is already true. Let me just give an example of this. Now it's working again. Hmm. All right. Um, Yeah, let me just give an example of this. In my own life, I grew up in my own faith journey. Um, my parents did a great job. We went to church. I grew up in the church, that kind of stuff, that there was a lot of order. And when I was growing up, there was two main prayers that we would pray. Uh, before every meal, it was this. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. May this food tell us be blessed. Amen. And before bed, oh, I'm going to try to remember this one. It was, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Something like that. Um, and I just grew up with those two prayers, uh, that those were just common every single day. When I got into youth, my youth pastor was actually working through another book. This whole sermon series that we're doing is uh, based on this guy called Bruxy Cavey, and he has this other book called End of Religion. And in there, he's challenging some of those ideas in these ways of that sometimes we actually just do things for the sake of doing things, that they just become meaningless, that we don't actually give them thought. And he's talking about our prayer life can become like that. If we just continuously say the same thing, we actually forget why we're saying it in the first place. We let the prayer actually become the main thing. We don't actually allow Jesus to become the main thing. So I remember being young, and I was like, oh, I just learned this. So I remember going home, and I'm being like, I'm not praying that prayer anymore. Call more Jesus prayer. I'm done. Uh, We're going to just spontaneously pray because this is a relationship, and it's a conversation. Uh, So I jump in, and my prayer life from then, I was like, oh, you know what? Like, God, thank you for today. And you think, thank God for the things that happened in the day. You thank God for the food uh, and for the company, whatever. Amen. Right, that it just became this spontaneous prayer that it didn't have the same structure uh, that I used to have. And I thought, like, hey, you know what? This is really, really good. And I continued through that prayer life. And then I had a kid of my own. And I'm trying to teach my daughter, Lucy, how to pray. And I said, Lucy, just wing it. It's just a relationship. Just do it. And I skipped order, and I went straight to disorder. And I said, just do it. And she never did it. She'd just be like, she'd shy away, and she wouldn't pray. So instead, what did I do? I went back to, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, may this food test be blessed. Amen. To build foundation, to build structure, 
to build these, using these rules and these rituals as this idea of actually building a foundation. And I think it's a beautiful thing. There's actually times where at night um, I hear her praying to Jesus just spontaneously, right? But it has to start somewhere. And sometimes it starts in like this own religious journey. And uh, I went to this idea, I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to say what I want to say. Um, but lately I realized, oh, you know what? I'm actually craving structure back in my life. I feel like I've said everything. I don't know what else I'm going to say. And I've actually resorted a few years ago back to the, using the Lord's Prayer as my guide for prayer. That every day when I pray, I actually pray through the Lord's Prayer. And yeah, I throw in a few listening prayer exercises and I throw in a few of my own words and I don't just, I use it as a template. But going back to that reorder, but I think it completely changed. It wasn't, oh, I'm saying this, this order and this prayer just to gain God's favor. No, now I'm actually using it uh, to actually just be reminded of God's love, to actually continue to build my relationship with Christ. It's that pattern of order, disorder, reorder. That these religious rituals and rules that they no longer killed the relationship, but they gave structure to enhance that relationship. They revitalized my prayer life and my relationship with God. So as we close, I got two challenges. Maybe, uh, as we talked about that kite at the beginning, maybe you have some religious baggage or you feel like being here is this obligation that maybe you need to remove the chain from your kite so that you can flourish. You can be, that you can flourish and fly being tethered to God. Maybe uh, you've been following religion and you've made it the main thing. Maybe you need to become less religious and focus on Jesus. Maybe you're being religious out of obligation and not out of adoration. You've turned to religion into the adultery, seeking something concrete, systematic, something that makes sense. Now maybe this is how you go about church life. Uh, maybe that's why you tithe. Maybe you think it's this obligation of trying to gain God's favor by the amount I tithe. Or volunteering. That you volunteer because you're trying to gain this uh, God, change God's opinion about you, that if only I do these things that actually I can gain salvation. But here's the thing, there's nothing you can do because God has already done it. That you can actually lay down the burden, you can lay down the religious burden and find Jesus who is already sitting at the right hand of God the Father. There's nothing you can do to gain more of God's love. You can just rest in that. And maybe as you lay those things down, and I'm not saying that those aren't good things because I think there are, there's something good to those things, but we don't want it to be done out of this thing of uh, obligation. We want it to be done out of adoration. We want it to be done not out of religion. We want it to be done out of a relationship. And as you lay those things down, maybe you need to take a break from some things and rest in God. To rest in God's love, to not be occupied by being busy, to rest in his hope, in his joy, and to find peace. At SunWest, we aren't looking for people to serve or tithe with a bitter heart but in a relationship that calls us into something more, into a deep love of Christ, into faith that isn't just about our head knowledge, but it actually uh, reflects our actions as well. And maybe, maybe uh, you need to tether your kite to something that you can flourish, right? Instead of just winging it, instead of just uh, this stage of disorder, maybe uh, you've been hurt by the church, or hurt by a religion, maybe you feel like you're stuck in disorder, or you feel like you need some structure, structure in your life. Maybe your life is missing rhythm, and you need to implement something to build that foundation, because the love, um, yeah, build that foundation based on the love that God has for you. 
Maybe you're actually called to tithe more or to serve more to, for the first time to actually jump into volunteering, that jump into those things that might seem religious, but it's not based on gaining God's favor, but it's based on uh, the love that God has for you. Right? It's this action piece, this belief piece. That it's not just about head knowledge, but it's about serving, not based on gaining God's love, but celebrating his love, drawing you back to what is already true in your life. And I, and I love this at SunWest, that we exist to guide all people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, and we're all in different stages of that relationship. Right? Maybe some of us need to get rid of uh, some more religious pieces, and maybe some people need to actually regain some of those things to enhance our relationship with Christ, but not based on gaining salvation, but uh, sitting in the love that God already has for you. So let us pray. God, thank you. Thank you that it is not about what we do, but it's what you have already done. That it's not about these systematic uh, rules or rituals to build this bridge to you, but that you've crossed that bridge, that you've actually already come to us, that you've shown us your love. So God, help us to discover that love more. Maybe that means uh, letting go of a few things, letting go of the busyness, getting rid of the, the rush to try to gain your affection, to gain your love, but Lord, let us just rest in your peace and who you are. Or maybe that's picking up some things, to build some structure, to not make things true, but to recognize what's already true in our lives. So we just pray these things in your name. Amen. What I love in that song is the contrast. This idea of going to the altar, it brings all of this religious background. We go to the altar uh, to find this God who has been angry or frustrated with us, and we lay down our sacrifice to be able to gain that forgiveness. But instead, what do we find? God with his arms open wide who's there to receive us as we are to realize that that forgiveness has already been bought not based on the things that we do but based on what God has done for us and if you're here uh, and you want to learn more about what does this actually look like not to be focused on all these uh, religious things or rituals or rules but actually just have this relationship with Christ we would love to journey with you in that uh, that we have prayer teams uh, up at the front I want to encourage you to go and ask for prayer to ask, what does this look like to have this relationship um, and to realize that, God, that you've been loved the entire time. So please come forward, or if there's other things going on in life as you recognize uh, this Christmas season might bring different emotions, some good for people and maybe some not so good. And if you're just looking for prayer in any way uh, or anything for life, that we are here to do life together and to journey together. Just a reminder uh, that we have a covenant community meeting uh, following this at 11.15, and I think all are invited, but this is our, yeah, our membership, our covenant community meeting. Um, but for everyone else, yeah, let's uh, yeah, just go, go in peace. Amen.